And as you take your seats, please open in your New Testament to the letter of Paul to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. This morning we get to study from the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. Now, together as a church, we have read through 1 Timothy, and maybe you continue to read through it. I would recommend you do that. It'll be a good means by which you could better follow this sermon series. Read 1 Timothy as often as you possibly can. And we are going to, I will tell you now, start very slowly. And then, don't be afraid, eventually we'll pick up the pace. We're going to look at just one verse this morning. We'll look at one verse next week. And there's a couple hundred verses in 1 Timothy, but don't worry. Eventually we're going to take big chunks, big chunks. Um, But we're going to start slowly. And we're starting slowly because I want to lay some groundwork for you. I want you to see some specifics that's going to help us to better comprehend what the Apostle Paul wrote to this young pastor, Timothy. Uh, Timothy in the church of Ephesus. Uh, And as we look at 1 Timothy, ask yourself this question. How essential is the church? How essential is the church of Jesus Christ? Uh, If you drive around the country, you'll see many steepled buildings. It's a beautiful sight. And it's not just in New England. Wherever you go, you see church buildings. And uh, many of them are quaint, like this one, with a steeple that points towards heaven reminding us that God is looking down, reminding us that God exists. It's a beautiful sight. But many of these churches are are no longer there. The buildings are there, but the church is gone. I remember when I lived in Chicago, there was a beautiful cathedral just a few blocks from where I went to school. And, And as beautiful as that cathedral was, it was now a discotheque. The steeple was still there. But at night, it was all green and blue and red lights flashing. And people were getting drunk and high weekend after weekend. And what used to be a place where God's word was proclaimed. See, the the, the building lasts for a long, long time. But the church itself in the building, not necessarily. So let me ask you, how essential is the church? Well, let me add a little to that. How essential do you say the church is to society? Can society flourish without the church of Jesus Christ? Well, give it some thought. But in the, in your, the process, consider this. For 2,000 years now, the church has been an incubator and a major source of social, social services to society at large. The church. People like you and me institutions or local churches like this one have been contributing to society for as long as the church has existed, 2,000 years. Hospitals throughout America, throughout Europe and Asia were established by Christians, the church. Orphanages and now adoption agencies exist because of the church. Schools and education because of the influence of the church. In fact, the church has been very much a part of the general social welfare 
of society now for 2,000 years. And the church has been an inspiration for art. Before books were readily available, before every man could read, the church taught. And the church taught through art, whether it was painted art or musical art. The church taught and helped the people to develop a proper worldview, a view that moved away from the now and temporal into a more eternal, celestial, there's something beyond us worldview. They learned it through church art. And at the same time, that art depicted, whether it was through a melody or on a canvas, it depicted the beauty of God and the beauty of his creation and the majesty of his power. The church. The church has been used to develop culture. The church has been used to develop a moral standard for society. And notice that now that the church is being ignored, where has morality gone? How many times did we shake our head this week as we listened to the news and said, I can't believe it? How did we come to that? Well, here's the answer. We have neglected the teachings of the church. The church has been the developer of governance. In fact, our American Constitution is heavily based on the Christian church's teachings. And look how we've benefited from it. Praise God. The church has been used to develop philosophy. The church has been used to develop proper politics. And Christians, raised and tutored by the Bible in the church, have been great contributors to science. Considered, for example, Florence Nightingale, the inventor of modern nursing, a devout Christian woman. Consider Werner Karl Heisenberg, the developer of quantum mechanics, a devoted Christian. Isaac Newton, George Washington Carver, men dedicated to Christ. And William Lord Kelvin Thompson, who beyond uh, or besides this uh, has done many great things for science. This is what he's mostly known for. He codified the first two laws of thermodynamics. Yes, he too. A man devoted to the writings of the scriptures, a man devoted to the Christ of the scriptures, a Christian man. And these are just a few. Uh, the church has been a place where the individual is grounded, like a mooring to a dock. People who are wise enough to tie themselves to the church of Christ and live a better life. And those who are wise enough to tie themselves to Christ live life. The church has been the stalwart of society, often taking on the burly punches of secularism, and yet remaining resolute, anchored to Jesus Christ. The church has benefited society tremendously. And as we saw just a few months ago, we did a series on the benefit of the church for Christians. And hopefully you, you glean some truth and, and hopefully you are holding those truths close to your heart. 
The church is especially, especially valuable to society at large, but especially to the Christian. Now, granted, there has been episodes in history, many episodes in history, in which the Christian was, uh, the church rather, was wrong, in which the church did what it ought not to do. But keep this in mind. Whenever the church did what it was not supposed to do, it's only because the church stopped acting like the church of Christ. As soon as we start moving away from what the scriptures say, understand this, the church will violate the word of God, will do harm to society. And that's why we have to keep our fingers in the text. That's why we have to keep our nose in the Bible. That's why we have to keep our knees bent before the Lord in prayer. Otherwise, what should be to the advantage of the Christian and society will actually be a harm. The church has a great responsibility. And so 1 Timothy is written in order to teach us how to build the church. My friends, think about it. If society has benefited so much from the church, how much more will the Christian benefit from the church? We are the very ones the church was created for. We stand a lot to gain. And as we look at 1 Timothy, here Paul gives instructions on how the house of God is to be built. Let me quote to you from John Bunyan. John Bunyan, you might remember, was that Puritan man who was incarcerated for preaching the word of God. Finally, he was let out just on a little furlough. What did he go do? He went and preached the word of God over the weekend, and he was incarcerated again. John Bunyan, uh, a tremendous preacher and writer, he is known for what has become um, one of the most popular books in history. The most printed book outside of the Bible is Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. And in it, he refers to the church as the house-built for the relief and security of pilgrims. The house built for the relief and the security of pilgrims. That is to say that the church sits, the church sits on God's hill and it is designed for the rest and for the security of those who are simply passing through in this life. I, I like to think of the church like a hotel. A hotel that puts you up overnight so that you can prepare for where you really want to go. That's the church. My friends, we are just passing through. And the church is designed to help you get to where you are going, the presence of God, into eternity. And so here in 1 Timothy, we are told, how this church then, if it's so important, how the church is to be built. Now, Jesus Christ did say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And notice there in the words of Jesus Christ, he said, I, Christ, will build my church. And he will do so successfully. So do not be afraid uh, when people start clamoring that the church is going to die. Listen, the church is not going to die until Jesus Christ says the church will die. Do not be afraid uh, uh, when people say the gospel proclamation will no longer be had because government or society is going to stop the church. No, no, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is to say that God, his church, is pressing against the gates of hell. Hell is not pressing against the doors of, of the church. 
it is the kingdom of God that's pressing on the kingdom of Satan, and the gates of hell will not endure, it will not prevail. Until the day God says it is time to cease with the church, and he will return. However, you notice here that though it is Christ who will build his church, he uses us, Christians, to do that building. He, he is counting on us, he is equipping us, he is calling us to be the builders. And Paul, in this process of building the church, writes three letters to, three, uh, to two pastors. We call them pastoral epistles. One was to Titus and two was to Timothy. These are letters written by an aging apostle who understands that now as he's getting older, the mantle is going to have to be passed on, handed over to someone who is younger. And Timothy and Titus are certainly younger. Uh, we do not know their age, but we do know from what we read that these are young men. In the case of Timothy, the writing, this first letter, happened around the year 62, between 62 and 66 A.D. And from what we can tell, about five years or so later, Paul writes again to Timothy, that's 2 Timothy, and that will be the very last letter that Paul writes to either a pastor or to a church before he's martyred. In this case here, 1 Timothy, Paul is writing from a region called Macedonia. Macedonia is the northeast portion of the Greek peninsula. And Paul had a rather significant ministry there in that region of Macedonia. Um, in many of your Bibles, if you look to the back, you'll find some maps. And in those maps, you'll probably find the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, his first, second, third missionary journeys. And, and if you take a look, you, you'll find Macedonia. You'll, you'll find where Paul is writing from, uh, where he's writing from to Timothy. It happens to be about 300 miles from where from where uh, Timothy is. Timothy is in Ephesus, which is present-day Turkey. And, and again, Paul is 300 miles northwest of there. Now, in, in this process of writing, Paul is giving to this young pastor some advice on how to build the church. He's giving gu guidelines. He's giving instruction. Uh, Paul is giving orders and, and requirements on how to build a church. Now, when I say Paul is giving advice, I, he is not saying, well, Tim, when you get a chance, or, or Tim, uh, if you think this is wise, he is not saying, you know, this is what I tried and it worked for me. You might want to try this in your church. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. When I say advice, I, I really mean requirements. He is giving to him, to Timothy, some very detailed and clear requirements for what Timothy needs to do if he is going to lead and build a church that honors Christ. A church that truly belongs to God. And so as you read through 1 Timothy, you'll notice that he gives their advice, instructions, requirements regarding proper worship and instructions in correcting wrong teachings. As early, as young as the church was, already there was improper teaching. He will also discuss 
confronting wrong teachers and qualifications for leadership within the Church of Christ and how to treat people who are in his congregation. And in writing to Timothy, he's also writing to the church in Ephesus, but he's also writing to us. These are instructions for us as well. And he goes on even to say to Timothy, he says, because of this task as a pastor that's being entrusted to you, Tim, you must live a life without reproach and give everyone a reason to follow you. You must live above reproach and give everyone a reason to emulate you. That's a pretty high calling. I think you would agree. He tells Timothy, Timothy, that means you're going to have to study the word of God and you're going to have to know the word of God. It means you are going to have to devote yourself to the public reading of God's word so that others will know the word of God as well. Now, notice that we do that every week. We read from either the Old or New Testament. Sometimes we read both. And the truth is, we all have a copy of the scriptures. If you don't, pick one up in a foyer. But in the days in which Timothy was being written to, people did not carry their own Bible in their hands. People did not have a printed version of the Bible to read at home. And so it was especially imperative that they would read in the public hearing. But it's important today as well. And so Timothy would make sure that they knew the word of God as he read it to them. And then, of course, as he taught it to them. Now you'll notice as you read through Timothy, 1 Timothy, that there's only one tool, one tool that Timothy as a pastor has to build this church. One tool. Do you know what it is? The Bible. One tool with which he's going to build this church. So let's take a look at what this tool is, what the laborer is to use. The laborer is going to use solely the word of God. The word of God will be his plumb line. The word of God will be his hammer, his sander. It will be his level. It will be his saw. It will be his router. The word of God is going to do all that. With that plumb line of the Bible, the church will be erected and it will stand straight. As the hammer, the Bible will chip away at whatever is wrong, and then it will hammer together whatever needs to be together, whatever has been separated. With the word of God as the sander, Timothy is going to smooth away all the rough spots. And as the level, the word of God is going to make sure that the church is even, that it's not lopsided, that it's not crooked. With the saw, with the saw, Timothy is going to divide and cut between right and wrong. And with the router, he's going to take whatever's average, whatever's common, and make it beautiful. The Word of God is going to do all that. And Timothy, of course, is going to have to know how to use this tool. Now, here's something I think you'll find interesting. That when Paul says the Word of God, he is referring primarily to the Old Testament. Because the New Testament didn't exist yet. It was still in a process of being written. 
of course, First Timothy, it will become a part of the inspired word of God, as will all the other New Testament books. But at this point, most of them are not yet available. They only have the Old Testament. Even the portions that were already written were not scattered among all the churches. And so when the Apostle Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading, he is meaning primarily the Old Testament. When the Apostle Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, he is referring mostly, primarily, to the Old Testament. But we know that eventually the New Testament is compiled. And that is inspired as well. And so, by God's grace, we live in this era where we have the entire revelation of God. And what a benefit that is to us. But keep in mind that Timothy, by and large, only had the Old Testament by which to build a church. Can you imagine building a church with just the Old Testament? What a challenge that would be. And because of that challenge, Paul writes then 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and so on. In fact, he writes 13 different letters giving instruction on what it means to be a Christian and how to build the church. Back in 1606, a fellow by the name of William Perkins published a manual on preaching. And he said, and I'll put it in contemporary English because it'll be quicker for us to understand instead of the old, beautiful but old English, uh, much more complicated to comprehend. This is what he writes about preaching, a manual on preaching. He writes, the word of God is the only field in which the preacher is to labor. It is to be preached thoroughly and consistently because the Bible is God's wisdom and reveals from heaven godly truth. Therefore, it, the Bible, evokes admiration because of its nature and effects. The nature of the Bible is that it is perfect, it is pure, it is eternal. The Bible's perfection rests in its purity and sufficiency. It is so complete that nothing can be added or taken away from it. Psalm 19.7 states that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He goes on. Its purity means that the Bible stands complete in itself. It stands without deceit or error. Psalm 12.6 reads, that the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times over. The Bible's eternity is the quality of remaining unbreakable. That is, it cannot pass away until all it says is fulfilled. Amen. And some people would say, you put too much credibility in that Bible. Well, I can say it warrants such credibility. It has proven itself over and over and over again. And I would ask, well, then what do you put your trust in? Where is your manual? Where is your toolbox? And I have found that whatever man offers pales in comparison to what the scriptures tell us. The man has written much and has said much, and we have many philosophies, many worldviews, 
but all of them fall short of what the scriptures say, and none of them bring life, except for the scriptures. The Bible is the only field in which the preacher labors. So if the preacher is preaching, it's got to be from the Bible. If the church is learning, the church must be learning the Bible and its application. That's all we have to offer. That's all we need to offer. That's all you should demand. That's all you should expect. The laborer's tool is the Bible. Now let's take a look at the laborer. We have here in these verses the instructor and we have as well the apprentice. Next week we'll look at the apprentice. This morning let's take a look at the instructor. And just one verse, 1 Timothy 1.1. You're wondering, boy, it took him that long just to get to the verse. Don't worry, don't worry. 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. You know, as you read through your Bible, as you read through your New Testament in particular, don't ignore these introductory verses. Much is said, and there's great significance for your Christian life in just these pleasantries, as we would think. You know, we all start our letters, when we used to write letters, with dear so-and-so, right? And essentially, in a way, Paul is doing just that. There, Timmy. But he's saying much more than just hello. He's saying much more than just, hey, I'm here and I want to talk to you. This morning, I want you to see who this instructor is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And that one singular verse there is just chock full of theology for us. For us to better understand why this book is so important. And so the instructor is, as you can see there, the Apostle Paul. Paul. Uh, the Latin, Paulus. There's a ring to that, isn't there? <laughs> and that is his Roman citizen name, Paulus. Uh, as a Jew, his name was Saul. Uh, that was the Jewish equivalent. But he was both a Jew and a Roman citizen. And so when he was ministering among the Jews, he used his Jewish name. And when he ministered among the Gentiles, he used his, his Latin name, Paulus. You know what I find interesting here in America? Brazilians call me Paul. And Americans call me Paulo. <laughs> Don't know why, but that's the way it is. And I'm okay with it. But it is different. It is odd. Now, Paul was not a particularly charismatic individual. He's not the kind of guy that when he walked in the room, everybody said, whoa, look at him. Who is that guy? He did not walk in tall with a beautiful $2,000 suit on. People did not say, whoa, I'd like to hear what he's got to say. No, it's quite the opposite. Let me read to you what a second century writer described the Apostle Paul as. This is not from the Bible, but from a secular author writing about this man, Paulus. He is a man with small stature, with a bald head and crooked legs. 
in a good state of body. In other words, physically he was fit. With eyebrows meeting. He had a unibrow. <laughs> a nose somewhat hooked and full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man and now he had the face of an angel. So he was an attractive person in that sense that when he was in a room, he was a very friendly guy, almost angelic. But as you can see, he did not have the stature of a man who would take the platform and wow people. He's not the kind of guy people would say, I'd like to follow him. What does he have to offer? Hardly. In fact, if you take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, this is what they said about him. Quote, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That is to say, physically, there's nothing really there to say, I'd like to listen to him some more. Like, what, who's he? What's he about? No, his appearance was weak. And his ability as an orator, his ability behind a podium, behind a pulpit to preach, well, it was nothing really significant. I mean, what he said was good, what he said was true, what he said was weighty and powerful. However, nobody said, wow, I really enjoy listening to the Apostle Paul. Some of you have your favorite preachers you listen to all the time on a radio, podcast, whatever it may be, and you're wowed by that person's teachings. That's good. Paul would not be one of them. He's not the kind of guy you would say, wow, what a voice. He knows exactly when to pause. He knows exactly when to pick up the pace. He knows exactly where to put the emphasis. He pronounces his words so well, and his grammar is impeccable. That was not the Apostle Paul. And neither is it me. I think you noticed. <laughs> Not only does he identify himself as the author here, but he also identifies himself as an apostle. Now, this is important. The word apostle is really a generic term, and it means simply one who is sent out on a mission with a credential. One who is sent out on a mission with a credential. Um, in this sense, the Apostle Paul was an ambassador, right? Um, earlier, Gabe read to us about how we are ambassadors of reconciliation. We are being sent out by God to evangelize the world and reconcile people to Christ. So in that sense, we are all apostles. Uh, James was such an apostle. Barnabas was such an apostle. But Paul here is identifying himself as beyond just a generic apostolic nature. Uh, he here identifies himself with one of the 12 apostles. Uh, here he identifies as one who is commissioned by Christ himself. Commissioned by Christ. He is a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he is commissioned by the very mouth of Christ, the lips of Christ, sends him into this ministry. Therefore, he is an apostle, one who holds the office, the apostolic office. And that apostolic office is one of authority in the church. Now, that office no longer exists. We no longer need apostles because we have 
everything the apostles were giving to us in these pages. However, the Apostle Paul here identifies himself as one of those, 12 plus 1, so that Paul is the 13th apostle. And these apostles were called by God to explain and to give divine truth. The scriptures are written to us by the apostles who give to us God's truth. And in fact, in some cases, in many cases, they were even enabled to do miraculous things to prove their claim. Well, how do I know you're an apostle? How do I know this is true? Well, didn't I just heal the sick? And these miraculous abilities were there to substantiate what they had just claimed. Paul was among them. Paul was one of these authoritative apostles holding to the office of the apostle. Now, this is important because as Paul is writing to Timothy, people are going to say, well, who are you to tell us how to build our church? And Paul's answer, I'm an envoy of Jesus Christ. I'm the apostle. That's why you should listen to me. I sometimes chuckle at people who say, well, I don't really have to pay attention to that part of the Bible because the letters are not in red. And some of you have one of these red letter Bibles. And the red letters are the words of Jesus Christ. They, they, they put it in red just so you can identify Jesus said these words. And people look and say, well, the red parts, oh, well, we better pay attention to that. And, and the black print, well, that was the Apostle Paul or Peter or James. Uh, we don't have to pay so much attention to that. No, no, please, please don't, don't be misguided by red letters. What Jesus Christ said and what the Apostle Paul and the others said are equally valid, equally important. In fact, as an envoy of Christ, Paul was speaking on behalf of Christ, with the authority of Christ. These are the words of God, the Holy Spirit. And so they're equally important. In fact, that takes us to their next point here. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Notice there his commander. His commander. I find it rather interesting that he acknowledges that God is the Father and source of salvation. He says, by command of God our Savior. And then he says, and Christ Jesus as the completion of our salvation, or better yet, Christ Jesus our hope. You see, the Father is the source of salvation. Jesus Christ is the completion or the means of salvation. And he acknowledges it right here in that one phrase. You see how important these introductory words are? It sets the whole groundwork for the rest of the book. His commander is God himself. And again, why is this important? Because people are going to say, hey, hold it. That's not how we see it. Who are you to tell us how to build our church? And Paul's going to say, well, you see, my commander is God. And I'm just relating to you what God told me. And so it would behoove you to listen and to obey. Now, one last point here I want to stress for you. Notice that not only does he give to us his title and who is his commander, but notice here he also identifies his motivation. What motivates the Apostle Paul to serve God this way? And here's the answer to that same phrase. It is the hope he has in Christ Jesus. 
He says, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. It is the hope he has in Christ that motivates him to do what he's doing. Who Christ has been for him in the past is the same Christ who is there for him in the present, which assures for him that the same Christ will be there in the future. And this produces hope. There's his hope. Now, I want you to see how powerful this hope is. And I'll be honest with you. I'm not just telling you this for the sake of information. I want to see whether or not it resonates with your idea of hope. Look at what this hope, the same hope that you possess in Christ. Look at how this hope motivated the Apostle Paul. This hope motivated him to endure being kidnapped. Have you ever been kidnapped? No? Okay. He was, and he endured it, and then he went back for more. This hope motivated him to endure being beaten, stoned. You haven't been stoned, have you? He has. Not that stone. No, no. <laughs> Stones, rocks. And he got up. When he was healed, he recovered, and he went back to the business of proclaiming Christ. That's how powerful that hope is. He was threatened many times over. He, he was arrested, put in jail many times over, thrown into dungeons and chains. And according to some archaeologists, they say that during his time in jail, at times during the rainy season, the cell would fill up to water up beyond his waist. And there he would just sit in water. And when he was released, what would he do? Go back to pro proclaim the hope he has in Christ. He was accused in lawsuits. He was interrogated. He was flogged. 40 times minus one. That is 39 lashes. Five times over. Five times over. Can you imagine what his back looked like? He was shipwrecked three times. Because he was proclaiming the gospel, he was shipwrecked. As he was proclaiming the gospel, being arrested because of proclaiming the gospel, he was placed on a boat, the boat sank, and he spent the night at sea. But it didn't, it didn't deter him. Why? Because he had this particular hope, a hope that just kept propelling him forward. I need to do more of this. Why? Because this hope is so real. This hope is so powerful. This hope is so genuine. This hope is so much a part of me that I must, I must proclaim the gospel. In fact, he said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If being shipwrecked was bad, in Paul's view, not preaching the gospel would be worse <laughs> because of the hope. He wasn't trying to get brownie points with God. He wasn't saying, look, God, everything I did for you, nobody else has. <laughs> no, he was saying, I just have to because this hope is just overwhelming. This promise that you've given this truth, this reality, what you've done for my soul, I can't contain. I have to keep telling others. 
And I know you're going to be with me. And I know you're going to come back and take me. I know that I'm just a pilgrim passing through. So until then, this is what I'm going to keep doing. I will endure. He was even bitten by a viper. My friends, all this testifies to the real hope that Paul had in Christ. And what a hope it is. You know, the the name of our church is Hope. But I wonder what it means to people who just passed through. I wonder what it means as we come in from week to week. My friends, when we talk about hope, we're not talking about wish. We're talking about a certainty that God's word is real. And that God's promises are true. It's a hope that says that he has transformed my soul. He has given me new life. He has put me on the straight and narrow, but boy, do I love it. It's a hope that says that one day he will return, and until then, he will remain faithful with me, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what happens. My God is true. My Jesus is real. And I will live for him. And I'll just keep telling others. Well, all this, my friends, just begs the question. How much are you willing to endure because of Christ's hope in you? It's a good question, isn't it? I'm not asking you to be shipwrecked. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm asking you simply this. How much are you willing to endure because of the hope of Christ in you? To what degree does the hope of Christ motivate you? So, in closing this morning, I want you to consider the following. A couple questions and then just a few statements. Here's the first question. This week, ask yourself, how much am I willing to endure because of the hope I have in Christ? How valuable is that hope to you? Knowing what we know about the Apostle Paul, we cannot avoid this question. Right. How valuable is this hope to you? Number two, keep in mind that the word of God is the sole tool given to us to build his church. That's the only tool we have back then and today. The Bible is the blueprint. The Bible is the toolbox. And I mention this especially this morning because 1 Timothy gives to us some rather challenging truths. Truths that run very contrary to our culture. Keep in mind that this is the only blueprint we have for building the church. Number three. Take time to thank God for his word in your life. Take time to say thank you, Lord, for having inscribed these words on these pages and given me a copy so that I could read it in private and in public. Thank you for words of life. People beg for this, and you have it. Read it, but thank the Lord as well. Number four, as we read and study, keep in mind that the Bible which was this particular book written in 62 AD, 1 Timothy, is still true today. What was said to Timothy back then holds true 
even today in 2023. And again, I mention this because there are some passages in 1 Timothy that are very difficult for us to embrace, for us to accept, because our world is so, so contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible, keep this in mind, this is very important. The Bible cannot say today what it never meant before. Keep that in mind as we read. Let's not try to twist the word of God so it fits in today's time. No, our times need to fit into the word of God. So the Bible cannot say today what it never said before. It is, continues to say the same over the centuries. And one last question. Ask yourself, to what degree do I value the church of Jesus Christ? How can I help build the church? To what degree do I value the church of Jesus Christ? How can I help build the church? Things for us to think about, things for us to consider, certainly things for us to pray about.